Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Takeaway Club where I talk to interesting people across different walks of life to get to know their stories and more importantly how they got to where they are including their motivations, habits, routines and aspirations some of which we can apply to our own lives. Hey before we get into the episode a quick update along with the podcast we now have a newsletter it's called beat the blues a bite sized curation every monday with the most interesting and random content that i come across in the week prior earlier i used to do this in an ad hoc manner sharing an article giving book recommendations to my friends that's when one of my friends uh, suggested why not do this in a more organized fashion and that's why we turn this into a weekly newsletter it's a small non intrusive email every monday with a bulletin of whatever content i am currently into it could be the books i'm reading the podcasts i'm learning from tweet threads that i enjoyed you know just a small boost to kick start your week and hence the name beat the blues so if you are someone who enjoys insightful random content but don't have the time to sit through and do the dirty work of browsing to find them you are going to love this it's super easy just head over to the takeaway.club and hit the subscribe button and you'll get the very next one hey everyone thanks for joining me on the takeaway club in today's episode i have shashwat sekar a virologist in training He is currently pursuing his doctorate from the University of Wisconsin Madison on veterinary pathobiology. His work focuses on the development of vaccines against animal and human coronaviruses. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation. Hi Shaswan. Hey Krishna, thank you so much for uh, having me here. I'm looking forward to our um, conversation. Exactly, exactly. I'm very excited about this conversation. and look forward mm-hmm. to learning a lot about your work as well as the pandemic that has uh, completely flipped our lives around yep definitely yeah i want to start off with uh, some context on your background you know, for people listening okay uh, so as mm-hmm. a virologist what does your day look like so if you can maybe give a walk through of some of the activities that you are involved in a typical work week that would be great mhm so you know as a virologist and this is true for many people in the field of stem you know there is no uh, specific schedule that we follow a lot of what we do over a week or over a day depends on kind of the projects that we are working on um and you know the experiments that are part of this project right and uh, general virology virologists um you know there are you know they're very diverse right um the kind of work that say a corona virologist like me would do uh would be something very different from what say a person working on measles would do right uh, so i i can give you some you know perspective from um the personal side right so my kind of work uh, works on um, is focused on vaccine development and there are two basic aspects to it one is to develop the vaccine itself and the other aspect is to test it um um in the host so in terms of vaccine development a lot of what i do you know is cloning right it's a fancy term that's been thrown around but it's a very common thing for 
um, general bioscientists and molecular biologists. So what I do is kind of chop genes, viral genes from the viral genome, and then insert it on a, another strand or a piece of DNA. And this uh, piece of DNA is something we call a plasmid DNA or a vector. And uh, this vector will help kind of uh, the viral gene um, um, enter the um, target host cell, right? So this is kind of one aspect where you have the vaccine uh, development per se. And then we run a couple of uh, quality control tests to make sure that the vaccine is working as it should before we kind of inject it to uh, the animals. And then the other aspect of it is, of course, uh, testing it in animals. Um, so before we kind of test the efficacy of the vaccine in animals, we make sure that the vaccine is well tolerated by the hosts, uh, that there is no allergic reaction. Um, and then we go about testing it. Um, so, for example, with uh, you know chicken coronaviruses is something that I work on. Um, we vaccinate birds at a very young age, and then we... Um, challenge uh, these birds with the actual virus um, a couple of uh, weeks later and see if these birds are protected against uh, challenge uh, with you know different metrics so a lot of work you know some few days i'd just be spending time uh, doing animal husbandry making sure that you know the birds are healthy eating properly um, drinking water and something interesting here is that um, you know, young birds, chicks, as soon as they hatch, uh, they do not know how to drink water or where to drink water from. So, you know, I spend like two to three hours as soon as they hatch, teaching them how to drink water, you know, forcing their beak onto these uh, automatic water nipples and making sure that they drink water and that they know uh, where kind of the water nipple is. And then I wait for an hour to make sure that the chicks are going there and drinking um, water from that, you know. So it's it's just very diverse. So I do a lot of things. And a lot of what I do is kind of dictated by which part of the project I'm in currently. And now I'm working with SARS-CoV-2, right? So there's a lot that goes into that as well. Because with SARS-CoV-2, considering the circumstances and the fact that we don't have vaccines, the fact that we don't have any drugs, it's a very dangerous pathogen, right? Mm -hmm. So there needs to be very special conditions to work with them. Uh, so it is classified as a biosafety level 3 organism. So you need a BSL-3 lab to work with SARS-CoV-2. And this would mean that the whole room is under negative pressure and would have um, HEPA filters, right? Uh, these are filters which can filter out the um, air that's going out and preventing escape of the SARS-CoV-2 that we work with um, in the lab. And uh, it takes about half an hour just to put on all the um, safety equipment necessary before we enter the room. Um, this would involve, you know, wearing your scrubs. On top of that, we wear a special suit. Uh, you know, you've seen all of these images online and doctors wearing these suits. That's what we do as well. And outside of that, we wear something called a PAPR unit. So this is like a huge hood, like an astronaut that you uh, pay, uh, kind of place over your head and then connect to a device which is on your waist, which would filter all the air that you breathe, right? So these are kind of the safety precautions that we take before we even start working uh, with the virus in our lab. And then before coming out, you completely decontaminate the suit uh, with alcohol and then bleach. And then once you get out, after you remove all the suit, uh, these suits, you need to take a bath to make sure that you've uh, got rid of any trace of the virus on your body. Wow. And then that's when you can really step out of the BSL-3 facility, you know. So this is a lot of what goes into my work as well. Yeah, you know, I spend like half an hour trying to get into the lab mm -hmm. when I have to work with this virus. And then another 45 minutes to get out of the lab, you know. 
so it's pretty interesting uh, it's a lot of fun to be honest it's like throwing up a strong proper every time you have to step in and out of the lab yeah exactly <laughs> how are things like at present mm-hmm. in terms of the pandemic uh maybe if you can throw some light into the specific kind of work that you are doing with respect to this mm-hmm. fighting against this coronavirus what were the first few weeks like when this thing got blown up to kind of give your listeners some context um i joined my phd initially and i the work that i focused on was to develop vaccines against uh, chicken coronavirus and uh, these um, you know chicken coronavirus as the name suggests infects uh, chicken and is of great uh, economic importance in the poultry industry just like sars cov2 and covid it causes severe respiratory symptoms but you know the chicken can easily clear the infection within 10 days but then what happens is you know the life of a meat chicken or a broiler is only 9 weeks 8 to 9 weeks and then if you know uh, they are sick for a week or 10 days they don't gain as much weight and unfortunately the poultry industry is an industry of small margin so this is something that uh, uh, farmers cannot afford right um, the kind of decrease in weight gain uh, which is a um, kind of major outcome of uh, avian coronavirus infections um so kind of there so there is a need for a cure so the cure that we i was working on was um, a vaccine right so uh, we kind of worked on developing a vaccine that could overcome uh, some of the limitations of current vaccines that are being already used okay so once kind of the pandemic started coming up so this was i think late december and early january since you know i work with coronaviruses and it kind of uh, um fell on our radar much before it did uh, for the rest of the public so my boss and i were kind of following it for a while and then once you know it started becoming big in mid jan we decided that you know why not why don't we try translating this technology for um, you know human coronavirus sars cov2 and uh, the other thing that i want to note here is that in our lab we regularly work with tuberculosis uh, which is um, even more transmissible than sars cov2 so we have to take more precautions working with tb than we do with sars cov2 so we have the necessary expertise to work with a deadly respiratory pathogen right so combining that and combining our expertise in coronaviruses in general uh, we started working on vaccine development for sars cov2 so at that point um, i think we started making our vaccines late january and we had a vaccine construct which was ready by uh, late february and then we started testing these vaccines um, mid march uh, in mice and the studies are still going on we have some good um, encouraging preliminary uh, results right so um, outside of this how has this impacted uh, the general bioscience community you know um, in general the academic uh, environment in the us and this is true for other countries as well is very structured right so in a lab you have a principal investigator or a pi uh, who is um, is essentially the boss or the equivalent of a manager um, uh, in a corporate institution right and uh, he is um, in charge he's kind of the think tank he or she they are the think tank who come up with the ideas and outside of that they are also responsible for getting the money to do these projects so the money again comes from federal grants so grants from the government um or other you know non profit organizations for example but they are very specific so if you get money say if you get half a million dollars uh, to do a particular project it should be only to kind of um, perform experiments related to that project right? so, so it's very 
tough to kind of deviate outside of the project goals, right? So immediately, as soon as this pandemic uh, hit, um, luckily we were in the field of coronaviruses, so we were able to convince uh, you know people who are funding us that you know we can translate our expertise for uh, the greater good uh, of the public, right? So, but this is not true of uh, many um, um, labs uh, in the STEM field, right? They are obviously. Uh, 99.99% of the labs are not working on coronaviruses. So they were not able to kind of transition um, to working with coronaviruses. And unfortunately, many of them had to shut down during uh, the lockdown, uh, right? But then despite this, many labs, uh, you know, they have taken the risk um, and, you know, diverted funds they've been using for other projects to work on SARS-CoV-2 to understand and, you know, come up with uh, interventions uh, to help public. And it's just, you know, it's like a, it's the, the kind of pace that we are in is like a war-like footing, you know. Um, you know, scientists are racing against time um, to kind of uh, come up with interventions, vaccines and therapeutics for SARS-CoV-2. So as someone who has been working on this much before the rest of the world, uh, uh-huh. what was your initial response like when you saw this uh, exploding the way that it has now? So, uh, what were yeah. some of the thoughts going through your mind, say, sometime in late December or in January? Yeah, so that in, with respect to coronavirologists in general, we've always been kind of outside of, uh, you know, central stage. You know, there are other big viruses such as flu and Ebola and Zika. These virologists always get their due and rightfully, right? These are more important or were more important than December of 2019. Uh, But then coronaviruses have been circulating in animals and humans for a very long time. So for chicken, coronaviruses has been, I think it was recorded. First time it was recorded, I think it was early as 1930. Right, and we still don't have uh, good vaccines, uh, right? And that is because you know it's in the poultry industry and not humans. And uh, before SARS one hit in 2003, um, coronavirologists, you know, no one really worked on, especially human coronaviruses. There were like four um, uh, human coronaviruses that cause common cold, right? Um, So there's no real attention. And then once SARS one hit, you know, there was more importance. Uh, given to coronaviruses in general. There were more groups who started working on it. Um, and then, you know, sars one eventually kind of died down. Uh, so no one really cared after that. And then MERS hit in 20, um, I think 2012, uh, was it? And then again, there was, you know, spurt in attention. Uh, but then it eventually died down because MERS never really picked up. But this one has been insane. You know, this is like, uh, you know, uh, a great upgrade on, on SARS-1 in terms of transmissibility, so on and so forth. But, you know, working with chicken coronaviruses, we've seen this with chickens. You know, this has happened with chickens 100 years ago, right? Something similar to SARS-1 first came uh, in the 1930s, right? And every five years, there were new um, different variants of um, avian coronavirus that started propping up. And that is what you're seeing with the human coronaviruses too, right? In early 2000s, you had SARS-1. And then early part of this decade, you had MERS. And now you have SARS-2. So we were like, you know, we've seen this before in chickens, right? And people shouldn't um, take this lightly. You know, coronaviruses are highly transmissible because uh, for chicken coronaviruses, if one bird in a flock of 10,000 gets infected, within next two to three days, all of the 10,000 birds get infected, right? So that's how quick it is, right? 
so uh, we were kind of you know we were hoping that it will kind of die out like SARS one but you know as the weeks uh, went ahead we kind of felt like the number of cases were precipitously increasing so that's when you know we started you know we were like you know maybe we should um, give more importance to it and let's uh, start thinking of uh, you know developing a vaccine for this you know multiple terms that are used interchangeably when talking mm-hmm. about the infection uh, you mm-hmm. sars cov2 and we call it covid-19 and coronavirus so is, what is the distinction between one another my vague understanding is yes. coronavirus is more like uh, the family and then sars cov2 and covid-19 it's all i don't know something like part of the family along with mers sars cov1 is that right or yeah so in in a sense yeah so as you know as a person working in the field it kind of irks me that when you know the media uses these terms interchangeably but <laughs> they are completely different you know um so um so to begin with coronavirus um is a family of viruses okay and there are 46 different types of species within coronavirus okay so one of those species is SARS-CoV-2 Okay. And another is SARS-CoV-1, and another is MERS-CoV, and the virus that I work with is infectious bronchitis virus, which is kind of the chicken coronavirus. Uh, is also a species of coronavirus. So coronavirus is the family, and it has forty-six different type uh, species uh, within uh, the family, right? And one of those viruses is SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-2 here is the virus. So it is a severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus two, because there has already been version one. um in early 2000s right and then covid is the disease that is caused by sars cov2 right is coronavirus um infectious disease right and 19 obviously because of the year that it came up in so it is the same difference between hiv and aids right aids is the disease or the syndrome which is caused by hiv similarly covid 19 is the disease that is caused by sars cov2 which is part of the coronavirus family so in a sense there is a chance that this very sars cov2 might cause something other than covid 19 um no covid 19 is um is just you know broad definition for all of the symptoms that you see right mm-hmm. and you know viruses are very specific in terms of the symptoms they cause so sars cov2 can only cause covid 19 so far ah, okay. so right that's all we know if virus gets one disease that it can infect people with yes uh, yeah but you know we don't know what sars cov 3 or 4 will you know hold okay, okay. Uh, we yes. know what will happen with those so so could you could you shed some light on the evolution of the virus since we talk about the family and its neighbors and everyone i mean you mentioned there were like specific right. types of viruses we are only what two down now right or if we take more three sars 3 down so that looks like there is still a lot where it came from i mean i understand yep. it originate this uh, particular uh, virus sars cov2 uh, it originated from the wet markets in wuhan uh, mm-hmm. but why now how does this uh, whole thing blow up like this is the uh, how does it work in a scientific perspective is it a case of you know there are all these different actions uh action a plus b plus c and then boom you just trigger a new virus yep so um so i want to give again some context i always like to you know uh, 
tell a decent story right so i'm again going to go on a tangent but this will be hopefully will be informative but in general what you've been noticing for all of these new emerging infections right take zika take ebola mers sars 1 and even sars 2 they have all been spillover incidents right so these are all cases of zoonotic infections right so this term would mean kind of jumping the virus is literally jumping from an animal to um humans right and uh, for sars 1 uh, mers and um, scientists speculate for sars cov 2 as well that this jump would have come from uh, bats right uh, bats um, as you would know are like the most diverse species when it comes to mammals i think it's bats and rodents so proportionally they have a lot of viruses in them right because of which you see a lot of these jumps from uh, bats to humans so and uh, this is for sars 1 mers and sars 2 right and outside of these three important coronaviruses there are other uh, you know four other human coronaviruses um, that cause common cold so 30% of um, the common cold infections in the world are caused by human coronaviruses which are not sars or mers mm. okay and these coronaviruses you know like thousands of years ago would have been like sars 1 or sars 2 right at some point they would have jumped from bats to or some other you know reservoir we don't know who uh, which animals were the reservoir would have jumped from bats to or that animal reservoir to humans and now they have become human viruses right and that's what's happening right now with uh, sars 1 and 2 okay and with respect to specific things that need to happen for a virus to jump from one host to another is that um, you know viruses are very specific in terms of the host they infect and also the kind of cells they infect within a host okay and that can dictate what kind of clinical uh, signs uh, host will kind of represent so for sars cov 2 it uses the receptor called human ace2 right so for this um, kind of bat virus to transition from bats to humans the virus really needs to learn how to use the human receptor right it's kind of a door and it needs to know how to open this door to enter the cell so that is one big adaptation right and that is one of the biggest barriers that a virus has so how um this could have happened is you know uh, scientists speculate that it was not a direct jump from bats to humans and that there was some intermediary reservoir okay and coronaviruses in general are very prone to recombination that is they tend tend to you know mutate a lot and tend to recombine with closely related coronaviruses right so imagine that there is a bad coronavirus and then there is uh, in china for example say there are pangolin coronaviruses right say for example a bat hunter um, or wildlife hunter you know hunts a bat and then hunts a pangolin right so at that point what happens is there is a chance for a bad coronavirus to recombine with this pangolin coronavirus to you know and develop a new um, hybrid coronavirus right and there is a high chance that this hybrid coronavirus has the ability to use wow. the human receptor right and then eventually in these wet markets when you know there is just you know poor hygiene conditions and then these uh, exotic animals are caged in close quarters and you know there is um, fecal transmission from one animal to another so there are so many different animal species proportionally there are so many different animal coronaviruses and then you have humans uh, in this scene as well so what happens is you know humans we have really put ourselves in circumstances where 
we are exposing ourselves to these um, recombinant uh, coronaviruses. And then, you know, this coronavirus just happened to, you know, like uh, where it came, you know. So it, it, it just evolutionarily adapted to uh, humans really well. So I guess the biggest um, adaptation that this bad coronavirus would have uh, undergone is to learn how to use the receptor for entry, which is the human ACE2, right? After what you explained, uh, in retrospect, it makes sense why this happened uh, somewhere mm-hmm. in the big market like that. Exactly. So I think going forward, you know, uh, the ways in which you can prevent um, such pandemics is to step up surveillance, right? Um, pump in research to understand w- what are the different types of viruses that are circulating in these animals, especially bats and rodents, because these um, are the most diverse uh, mammal species out there. And proportionally, they have a lot more viruses um, circulating, right? So if we understand the type of viruses that are circulating and kind of see how far they are from um, when getting used virus, to... Uh, I have a... I'm sorry? Uh, I just had this question there. When you say bats and rodents are diverse, uh-huh. Uh-huh. what exactly do you mean by that? So there are multiple species within bats. There are different type of bats out there, right? And each of these types of bats will harbor different type of viruses, mm-hmm. right? Because they have different habitats, uh, different, you know, uh, sleeping schedules, for example. Uh, they are, you know, they eat different things. So all of this will also dictate what type of viruses they harbor. Because the environment they will be surviving in is completely different because of which the viruses that they have will also be completely different, right? So, you know, each species of bats will have their own niche environment of virome that they will have, which could, you know, spill over into humans. And does it make sense? Yeah, I've got that part. Yep. Is there a reason why most of the uh, viruses uh, spread to humans from bats? Or yeah, I know. Is there any cause? Yeah, so this is something that uh, scientists have been trying to figure out, right? So these Bats have so many viruses that are circulating. A single bat could have like, I'm just, you know, taking numbers out of the air, but um, I could be wrong, but there will be 30 to 40 viruses circulating in a bat at the same time, right? But the immune system of bats are so fine-tuned that they're able to keep these viruses at bay. And um, this is still, uh, you know, uh, the research is still ongoing. No one really has an answer as to why bats are able to harbor so many viruses and are also kind of uh, able to keep so many viruses at bay. But one speculative reason is that, you know, they are um, flying mammals, right? So because of which when they tend to fly, uh, they have a higher body temperature, which uh, is not really amenable for many of these viruses. So what happens is, you know, even if there is a virus boom at some point inside the bat, once they start flying, the body temperature increases, which in turn kind of reduces the amount of virus in the system. So they're able to tolerate all of these different types of viruses, right? And and with globalization, you know, humans are increasingly coming in contact, you know, deforestation, all of which you would have learned in like 10th grade um, social studies, for example. Um, You know, there is this deforestation, so on and so forth. So there is a lot more interaction with bats in the wild. So, you know, naturally there is more spillover these days. Oh, that does make sense. One of the other puzzling questions that people have around the virus is, uh, why does it affect different people in different manner? Is this aspect uh, of a varied impact 
depending on the mm-hmm. host or is what is that why are some people symptomatic and why are some people asymptomatic what are the factors at play there uh, that gives out this right. different reactions from different people infected with the virus yep so so mostly so this is dictated by the host um, you know in terms of the severity of clinical illness not really from the virus point of view because you know this virus is highly transmissible uh, right and its ultimate goal is contagion correct and this is like the virat kohli of viruses so it doesn't need to really change anything to be honest right so all of these different clinical manifestations uh, comes from the perspective of the host you know you have uh, certain populations which are more vulnerable right um, for example older people over the age of 60 or 70 and you know age is uh, in general a proxy for your health and also a proxy for your immune system right um, so the faster your immune system is able to control the virus the lesser the symptoms will be right um, and again people with comorbidities such as diabetes or cardiovascular diseases or people who smoke generally tend to have um, weakened immune systems and even people who are immune compromised those uh, who have hiv aids or are in chemotherapy these people have um, lower um, or weaker immune system so they're not able to um, amount as much of an immune response which uh, leads to worse outcomes and outside of this um, another feature is that there is uncontrolled immune activation which leads to a term called cytokine storm right so i to kind of give you some context what happens is that your virus kind of initially hops on uh, to your upper respiratory tract okay so if you are a healthy individual if you have a good immune system you are able to your immune system is able to immediately um detected um so your immune system is again kind of split into two different arms you have the innate system and then you have the adaptive system the innate system is um very quick in response but it is very general it's not very specific and not as robust as the other arm which is called the adaptive immune response which are your b and t cells your white blood cells um and this adaptive uh, immune response is more specific more potent but takes time to kick in right because your body needs to kind of uh, identify what the virus is and eventually mount a very specific response to it so what happens is when you when the virus initially hops on uh, to your upper respiratory tract your innate immune response kicks in right so it kicks in and if you have a healthy immune system it's able to immediately clear uh, the infection um, and um, it releases uh, molecules called cytokines so these cytokines have multiple functions there are different type of cytokines that exist and uh, each of these has different functions and it's you know it's just huge repertoire of uh, of uh, cytokines that exist um and in 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 moderation it is very helpful right but what happens is if you don't um, if your immune system is not able to detect it and control it the virus gradually moves from the upper respiratory tract you know from your trachea upper trachea to the lungs and that's when it starts uh, getting more serious um and then in response you know the air sacs in your lungs starts releasing so much fluid um uh, which leads to you know uh, breathlessness and eventual um you know um need of ventilator and uh, ARDS which is acute respiratory distress syndrome and outside of this what happens is sometimes your immune system will try to overcompensate and go into overdrive which means that in order to get rid of the virus at any cost it uh, releases so much cytokine right so cytokines in moderation will kill the virus infected cells but what happens is that if there is so if there is a lot 
from localized cytokines, it will also start, the immune cells will also start killing the bystander cells, cells which are not infected and cause a lot of inflammation and damage to the lung, right? Which is what causes your acute respiratory uh, distress uh, syndrome. So a lot of this, the difference in the symptoms comes down to uh, the um, um, kind of the, uh, the status of your uh, immune system, right? And another important thing that I want to highlight is that children, uh, so for example, for flu, um, the vulnerable populations are young children and older people, right? So you would think that that should be the same case for um, uh, COVID, but that's not the case. Um, older people are vulnerable, but children for some reason are not as vulnerable um, as they are to the flu and scientists uh, are you know speculating they still haven't found out why that's the case uh, one particular reason is that um, children and healthy individuals in general have more or a higher density of human ace2 than uh, younger uh, older people you know this seems counterintuitive right uh, you would think that if you have more human ace2 um, it would uh, you know Exactly, right? But that's not the case. What happens is, you know, human haste too, it is, it is there for a reason in the host, right? It is not there for the virus to use. So humans have a function for it. And it uh, plays an important role in immune modulation, right? So uh, scientists believe that if you have more human haste too, you have a more, you know, balanced immune response or a dampened immune response. And there is no uncontrolled, um, you know, um, cytokine storm. So that is a potential reason why, you know, maybe children have, um, uh, you know, less severe symptoms as well as healthy adults. So these are a few reasons why, you know, there are just a myriad of uh, different symptoms out there. So on the same lines, uh, how much of a correlation is there between the blood type and the risk of a person getting infected? I read a couple of reports where, where, uh, people of a particular blood type, they seem to be more at risk of getting infected. Yeah, so there was a, I think uh, the study that you were referring to uh, was actually a very neat study that was done in uh, Italy and Spain where they, I think, recruited like, um, I think it was close to 2,000 uh, patients. I'm not entirely sure. Um, so the idea of that study was to compare the genomes, right, to find, to see if there are any differences between people who had uh, symptomatic disease, who had severe disease, and those who had mild disease, all right? And of course, the media will only focus on things that are, uh, that make more sense to them, which is blood type. But there were other conclusions that also came from that study, right? There were, I think, three distinct conclusions. One was the blood type, obviously, where they showed that people who had blood type A had a 50% uh, greater risk of uh, severe disease versus people who had blood type O had a 50% lower risk of uh, getting severe disease. Again, this is not uh, whether you will get infected or not, uh, but this is more down to how severe the disease will be, right? Whether you have mild symptoms or if you have uh, severe symptoms. So the other um, kind of two other places where they found mutations or differences between the genome of these two groups is that uh, one region was in uh, uh, a protein that is involved, um, it's, a, it's called a transporter protein and it is shown to have uh, interact with human ACE2 in some form, right? And this is another region that they found a difference in. Again, they don't know um, how this really affects uh, disease outcome. And the third um, 
um, kind of region that they uh, looked at was there was a mutation in one of these cytokines. So there is a, a cytokine called interleukin-6 or IL-6, um, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. So this cytokine will promote inflammation, right? So this in moderation is very important for viral control or any pathogen control. But again, maybe the, the scientists speculate that mutations in this gene could lead to, um, you know, um, excess production of this IL-6, which could, uh, you know, worsen the disease outcome. So these were kind of the main talking points um, of this uh, paper. And, you know, blood type correlation was also, um, uh, again, one particular uh, finding. And again, more studies needs to be done to definitively say that this blood type would really cause uh, worse outcomes. Got it. So, this is one of the cases where correlation doesn't really mean causation. Causation, yep, exactly. So, that's right. a kind of a relief actually because the yep. headlines that uh, were being thrown around is A positive is one of the blood types that is very vulnerable and right. happened to be A positive. So, <laughs> personally, it's Oh, really bad. <laughs> no, in general, so the so the so that's the thing, right? You need to rank the outcomes of certain things, right? So you are a young and healthy individual, so that would precede any other risk factor mm -hmm. that you have, right? So if you are a young, healthy individual, the chances of you having a severe infection is very low, right? Irrespective of the blood type that you would have, right? At this point, that's what it seems like, right? But for people, you know, I, you know, I don't want to raise any alarms, but older people or people with weakened immune systems with blood type A, you know, maybe you could have worse outcomes, but we don't know again. You know, there's just... So, something that needs to be put out there is the fact that this virus is only six months old, right? And the amount of information that we know about this virus already, thanks to so many scientists around the world, is just amazing, right? We've been studying HIV for the past 30 odd years, flu for the past 100 odd years, and, you know, we don't have a good vaccine for that yet. Right, but the way in which we are progressing for a vaccine now for SARS-CoV-2 is just unprecedented. So the amount of work that's going into it is just amazing. But at the same time, you should take it with a grain of salt because some of these studies are being put in um, preprint journals, which have not been peer-reviewed yet. So whenever we publish uh, academic journal uh, papers, they need to they need to go through a peer review process where uh, experts in the field will review your paper, make sure that it meets uh, scientific standards and rigor, and only then will it um, you know be published, right? But some of these reports that are coming out have been pub uh, are being put up in these um, non peer reviewed journals, right? So you should they have not been critically analyzed by experts in the field. But then you know the media is always out for news, so they're gonna um, jump onto this, right? But as a public, you know, you can't really blame the media. You know, they are out for news. Uh, but as public, you know, they should, um, you know, take it with a grain of salt and see if... I know it's tough for the public to do that, you know. Um, even for, um, you know, me being in the field, it's very tough to keep uh, abreast of all of these new findings that are, you know, coming up, right? Um, so, yeah, so you should take it with a grain of salt and make sure that this has been published in journal. Uh, that's you know that go, that's been go, that goes through a peer review process. Uh, so I want to get your thoughts on uh, testing. I want to understand what goes on behind the scenes when a person takes a COVID nineteen test, and why does it take so long to get the results, and 
why is it so hard to procure these testing kits okay so there are two type of two types of tests that you can get for uh, covid-19 okay one is um, to test if you have the virus right now okay and another test is to see um, if you've had the virus at some point okay mm-hmm. so there are two clear distinctions okay so the first part which is to show that you actually have an active infection is potentially when you have symptomatic patients who go in and then you get a you know either a, a saliva or you get a, a nasal swab and then what happens is that um, the kind of process that goes through is that they will kind of dip it in a liquid um, and then what they will do uh, or technicians in general will harvest rna so this sars cov2 is an rna virus okay Uh, so the genetic material is in the form of rna versus you know humans are dna you also have other dna viruses but um, so what you do is that take this fluid and then you extract the rna um, from this fluid and then you uh, perform uh, something called reverse um, a transcription where you convert this rna into a dna like how hiv would do it um, and then using this dna as a template you will see uh, you will do a technique called a polymerase chain reaction or pcr which is kind of a staple in the life science community um, they will do this pcr to see if you have um, pieces of a viral rna okay so this is the process that happens so as you can see there are multiple steps involved here right and rna is very fragile to be honest right so there needs to be a cold chain for it and to do each of these extractions right um extracting rna is not that big of a limiting factor but then converting this rna to cdna you need a very specialized uh, machinery called a reverse transcription machinery right uh, and uh, right now we um, kind of derived synthetically based off of uh, um, certain retroviruses like uh, hiv not exactly hiv but other retroviruses so these um, things it's very difficult to scale this particular reagent um, for mass testing right um so that is a big limiting factor and that is why you know it is it is nearly impossible to have billions of tests right um you know even right now we you know six months uh into this pandemic and we don't have enough tests because that is a huge limiting factor right so this is one type of test that they do the other one is antibody testing uh, where um this will inform whether you've had the virus at some point before right so what they do is take blood from you harvest serum and then see if you have uh, sars cov2 specific antibodies in the serum okay this is a straightforward test okay this can be done quickly uh, something like a pin prick get the blood and put it on a membrane and you'll know if you have it or not okay uh, but again the problems with those is that right now you have it you know i see more and more companies coming out with that uh, with the problem with that is that you need to validate it okay so you need to make sure that it detects all positives and it negates all negatives right you don't want a high false positive rate uh, right uh, that can be very detrimental so the time it takes to validate these tests will be long because you don't want any false tests out there right so that is kind of the limiting factor so i think going forward you'll have more and more of these antibody tests but antibody tests will not tell you if you have a current infection okay because antibodies takes a uh, time to develop so you have uh, good detectable antibody titers like two weeks after you have the actual infection right by the time you could have cleared the infection right or you have no symptoms at that point right so these are two clear distinctions um, and you know all of these reagents 
in general when we do it in our lab these kids come from different parts of the world you know they're manufacturing different parts of the world and then this company kind of puts it together right so you need all of these different manufacturing units working full time overdrive to um, come up with tests um, you know millions of tests right so that is a huge problem and you know countries like china uh, are you know like the manufacturing hub of the world and they were shut down for a long time right which puts a strain on the supply chain so in terms of logistics and manufacturing there was a huge problem there wasn't a problem in terms of the science aspect of it you know of course validation you can validate the pcr test quickly um, uh, which they did do but i think the limiting factor was really uh, the um, you know unavailability of the reagents to scale it up for mass testing yeah, that makes sense so uh, on the subject of vaccines uh, i have this particular question and you can uh-huh. to not comment as well uh, so a few weeks back dr anthony fauci um so mm-hmm. give context for folks listening he is the director of mm-hmm. the national institute of allergy and infectious diseases uh uh-huh. he is one of the top infectious disease experts on the trump's administration task uh-huh. for coronavirus so right the gist of it is he basically gave a timeline of uh, fewer than 18 months to produce a vaccine so uh-huh. that outrageously ambitious the reason i am asking um, so so i got to read this very interesting insightful eye opening new york times piece uh, that addresses uh-huh. the practical challenges of developing and shipping vaccines and what a typical time uh-huh. might look like so based on uh-huh. the what i read there a uh, more accurate prediction is uh, somewhere around 2036 if i am not mistaken uh-huh. so what is your thoughts on this whole vaccine in 18 months uh, is that something that we should take with a grain of salt no actually just to kind of um, to start off dr fauci he is like the superstar of infectious diseases he is an expert and you know all of us look up to him um you know again he is in a very precarious position trying to uh, kind of manage this um you know um to be blunt inefficient uh, administration as well as at the same time uh, help the public right so i think this 12 to 8 months was kind of a trade off to please both ends of it but uh, in terms uh, of vaccine development right the fastest a vaccine has been approved uh, was 5 years okay uh, and this was back in the 60s or 70s i'm not really sure so that was the fastest vaccine has ever been um, um approved right um because there are like i said before there are a lot of these phases and the fda sets really high standards for vaccine safety and efficacy right and for you to not cut corners and go through each of these stages it can take like 15 years right uh, so whenever initially when we started working on vaccines for animals and humans my boss will always tell me that you know vaccine development for animals will take like 5 years right because the standards are a little bit lower but then vaccine development for humans will take like 10 to 15 years okay um, and my boss has developed vaccines for tb for other food animal pathogens and you know some of them have not been licensed yet because it takes a long time to show that it works 
um, and it meets the safety standards, right? Um, so right from the start of preclinical testing till um, when it is approved, it can take about 10 to 15 years, right? And then the next big limitation is manufacturing, right? You Like I talked about the tests, some of these new technologies that are there in phase three clinical testing um, are, you know, newer technologies, right? Those, those that have not been used previously for mass vaccinations. So how are they going to manufacture that at a large scale? Uh, from my perspective, I don't really know, um, but I'm pretty sure they're working on it um, at the moment. Uh, but, um, you know, it's just, but again, that scientists are moving in unprecedented rate. And most of this preclinical testing has already been done for, you know, Mars and SARS-1. And because of these pharma companies, you know, uh, big budget, they were able to also do their preclinical testing for SARS-2 within two months. They developed the vaccine within a month, tested it in different animal models uh, with two to three months, and then immediately started uh, clinical testing, right? So the worry now is that uh, we really don't know what's going on with respect to the clinical trials. The The hope is that um, in an effort to kind of come up with a quick, uh, um, you know, vaccines, the hope is that they do not cut corners and, you know, um, they do not compromise on the safety of the vaccine mm-hmm. in an effort to come up with a quick vaccine. So 12 to 18 months is highly ambitious. Uh, in my mind, I can see a vaccine that can be given to everyone possibly by the end of uh, 2021 or start of 2022. Um, and that in itself is very ambitious. But then all of these vaccines that are in, you know, um, clinical trials right now are very promising. So we know that they work, right? Um, again, uh, the thing now is whether they are safe, number one. And number two is uh, if they can be produced at a large scale, right? We need you know, 7 billion doses for the whole world mm-hmm. to be vaccinated. Uh, will we ever reach that stage? We don't know, right? And many of these uh, vaccine companies are based in Europe and in uh, US. So how are countries like um, you know India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh ever going to get their vaccines, right? Um, so these are the questions that need to be answered and, you know, the more practical limitations outside of science. So, uh, one more question that I probably want to get your views on without uh-huh. offending you in a sense is, uh, what is it that uh-huh. makes preparing for a pandemic so excruciatingly tough? Because, uh, at least from my layman's understanding, given our access to resources, our tech advancements, we talk about AI and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't we have had a head start when you look at that now famous Bill Gates TED talk? He basically predicted this like he had a time machine. You can't right. but think we could have done something different at some point here. Right. So again, the biggest problem is funding, right? So scientists have been harping about this for a long, long time. So this is um, kind of an integral part of Virology 101 that I took, you know. My uh, my instructor at that point said, you know, there is going to be a pandemic in the future. We just don't know what it's going to be, right? But we do have the ability to know what it could be, right? And that, again, comes down to surveillance, right? And all of these new emerging infections are zoonotic infections. They are coming from animals, right? Why can't scientists, you know, go about surveil? I know it's a huge undertaking, right? Um, 
go about surveilling bats and other rodents to see what are the viruses that are going on and develop vaccines and drugs preemptively right mm-hmm. for sars 2 take sars 2 for example right we've had sars 1 right and many groups were working on sars 1 and it eventually died off right and no one really pushed after that and you know scientists were clamoring for funding no scientists got money to pursue sars 1 because you know the government and other these big pharma companies thought there was no profit and no point of doing it because it eventually died off but if we had developed drugs for sars 1 the biology of sars 1 and sars 2 is similar enough that you can translate drugs um, that you developed for sars 1 for sars 2 and we could have saved so many lives and the same is true for vaccines if we had a vaccine for some of the more conserved regions um, of sars 1 we could have used that for sars 2 that would have had some efficacy and again saved so many lives right uh, the problem is that in many parts of the world vaccine development uh, comes down to the hands of the private sector right these large pharma companies uh, don't want to spend millions and dollars of uh, you know um, on on vaccines that could not be used at all right say you develop vaccines preemptively and what if there is no pandemic in the future for those vaccines so and uh, life science research is very expensive so pharma companies are not going to invest millions of dollars into developing a vaccine that they might never use and there is no monetary sense to do it right so the shift must come from you know from above where you know federal government agencies should take it on themselves to start developing vaccines preemptively and keep a stockpile right pump research into surveillance pump research into developing vaccines for these uh, animal viruses and then if there is a pandemic in the future we can immediately start scaling up and using that right so that is how we can be ready right it is very tough to stop um, these spillover events because you know the world is becoming smaller and smaller it is very you know tough to kind of prevent these events from happening but we can be prepared and how is that by kind of redirecting funds to surveillance and developing drugs and um, vaccines for many of these viruses that are um, circulating out in the environment yeah that makes a lot of sense and uh, we are fortunate enough that someone like a bill gates or a warren buffett people who have a real influence over things like this are actually raising their voices mm-hmm. to invest in uh, such initiatives uh, preemptively yep. like you mentioned mm-hmm. and the worst part is probably you have these internet trolls who still take a dig at bill gates he's trying to rule the world yeah from i personally admire him a lot and uh-huh. i've been following him for quite a while and he mm-hmm. does look like he has genuine interest at heart yep something from our perspective is that bill and melinda gates foundation funds a lot of research um uh, focused on diseases in you know tropical areas right um, con- um conditions like malaria diseases like malaria um and then tb and then so many other diseases in africa many groups in the us are studying these diseases and all of them are funded by the bill and melinda gates foundation right they are very generous generous and you know bill gates um, needs to be you know appreciated for uh, his philanthropic efforts definitely and you know i mean there are always going to be people on the other end of the spectrum uh, but you know uh, that's how the world is so you can't do much about it that's very true man so i have a few people uh-huh. who came up with a lot of interesting questions that they wanted your opinion on 
Okay. So I want to jump into the Q&A now. We had a couple on the transmission and there is uh, probably some of which that we have already covered in the course of the conversation. One of the questions is, uh, I see a trend where the incubation period for people affected has risen from 14 days to 21 days. Is there a case for the virus getting more comfortable and stronger within the human body? Uh, that's actually very interesting. Yep. So I haven't come across um, any studies which have specifically looked at that. But then again, you know, it's there's just so many of these papers that are coming out these days. It's tough for me to uh, keep abreast. But um, uh, in terms of uh, the populations that are getting infected, maybe there is a shift from older people to younger people that could potentially explain why there is a longer incubation period, um, you know, because the virus is uh, finding it tough um, for uh, to kind of establish an infection and before symptoms start to appear. That could be one reason. Uh, the other reason is not necessarily reason, but at the genetic level, right? There are um, very few mutations that... Um, you know, have a phenotype per se, you know. So these there are a few mutations um, that have come up in some of the circulating strains, but that does not really translate into a difference in how the virus um, transmits or uh, replicates in humans yet. Because again, this is, like I said, is the Virat Kohli of viruses, right? So it doesn't really need to change anything, right? Unless there's a bottleneck. Say you come up with some silver bullet drug in the future and there is a bottleneck there and maybe at that point, mutations could lead to drug-resistant um, viruses, right? So, as of now, in my uh, understanding and knowledge, there has been no, uh, you know, development of any of these new viruses or new mutations or anything or better adaptation, right? I think for, to begin with, these viruses are very well adapted to humans. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next one here at this point. Uh, this uh-huh. one is on the transmission dynamics of the virus. Uh, uh-huh. There were actually a couple of questions on the same subject. So one was about why the symptoms are uh, not uniform or distinct uh-huh. that we right. heard at depth in one of the yep. uh, earlier parts of the conversation. So the yep. other question we have here is uh, because we have a lot of uh, debate on whether to order food and the safety of it. So does uh-huh. this virus spread through food? Say somehow it landed um, on food and I ate it. What are the chances that I'll be infected? Uh, very, the chances are very low. Um, again, you know, there are multiple things that you need to take into consideration here. Is that this virus um, is very sensitive? You know, these getting into the technical side of it, these viruses are envelope viruses. So in general, they are more sensitive. Uh, but you know, like I said, these SARS-CoV-2. Um, infects a particular type of cells, which is present only in the upper respiratory tract, right? The food that you ingest does not go through the upper respiratory tract, right? So the chances that um, you would really get infected with SARS-CoV-2 on food is very, very negligible, um, right? But, you know, people ordering food from outside, uh, what I would suggest is to kind of um, clean the surfaces of the packaging that you get but don't really, you know, look to sanitize any of the food per se. If you just okay, clean so. fresh um, fruits and vegetables, that's more than enough. But usually they are just there on the surfaces. So just the containers or packets, if you sanitize it well enough, it's fine. You There is 
literally know it's going to transmit via food and even uh, one of the common symptoms that people have been noticing are uh, is diarrhea um so which means that the um, virus is able to establish infection in the gut mucosa but then again it needs to come start the infection from the upper respiratory tract right it can't directly go to the gut and initiate an infection right so it is a gradual process so you can't really the long story short you can't really get infected from food eating food maybe relieving it <laughs> yeah so i have one on immunity uh uh-huh. as someone who has no choice but to go out on the field for work right and possibly even interacting with people who have tested positive eventually i have taken uh-huh. the test four times already and it has all uh-huh. come back negative is it possible okay. that i might have encountered encountered the virus without actually contracting uh-huh. it so uh so this, also okay. follow up on that uh if uh-huh. a test comes back negative how much can i actually uh-huh. it? so uh the reason i am very specific about this is i have old folks at home and i'm constantly afraid uh-huh. i might have the virus without getting infected uh-huh. i'll still spread it to them so uh is that yeah, clear actually, you want yeah. me to go through the question once more no i think that's uh, clear so i think a distinction uh, um, for the kind of the listener to clarify is what type of testing they got um, right so like i uh, explained before there are two different types of tests you have your antibody testing and then you have your pcr test where they look at active infection right so if you did uh, the pcr test uh, and it came back negative it means that you know and four tests right um, so uh, in general sensitivity is a measure that um, is used to evaluate the performance of a test right how sensitive it is is it and how quickly can it pick up the right positives right but if you've done it four times in succession the kind of the sensitivity rate increases from 99% to 99.99% right so you can be sure that you have not had the virus at uh, four the four times that you have tested right the other thing that you could possibly do is to get an antibody test right so this tells you whether you had the virus at some point okay so there are two kind of clear distinctions um so um, the chances that you don't have the virus is pretty high since you had four negative tests but if you are really curious and want to know um if you've had the virus at some point before then you i would suggest that you do a an antibody test I'm, i'm sorry to interrupt but uh, uh-huh. um, do you, do you have any idea on uh, the kind of tests that people generally take because in india it's just we have garment institutes that mostly just uh, if you have symptoms we just go there and take a test so yep there is probably only one kind of testing that's done across the country yep that's a that's a very good point yeah so i think that must be the um, pcr test which tells you whether you have the infection at that point or not okay um so um these antibody tests are slowly coming up in the us and i know that there are some vendors who could probably um eventually market it um for the public so the public can directly buy it from you know pharmacies in india and do the test themselves it's like you know your sugar test or something where you just prick uh, your finger and then you get the blood and you see if you have antibodies or not if it is positive uh, it means that uh, you had the virus at some point um, mm-hmm. uh, you know um, but if it's negative it means that 
there is a high chance that you've not had the virus before. Uh, so the follow-up question this person had was, uh, is there a chance that they might have the virus uh, without uh -huh. getting infected? As in, does it even make uh, uh, sense that something that I have been confused as well? Uh, is there a case where you carry the virus, but you're not infected by the virus? Yeah, there is a possibility if there is very low level replication of the virus. And in general, studies have shown that, uh, you know, 48 hours before uh, symptoms kick in is when there is a high um, viral replication, right? So there is lots of virus everywhere, which is eventually picked up by the immune system. And then you start having these symptoms, um, right? Um, so at that point, like 48 hours before symptoms, uh, symptom onset, uh, you could start uh, shedding uh, virus and again this is not being asymptomatic this is pre-symptomatic right mm -hmm. you're going to get symptoms at some point um, it's just that you start um, um, shedding the virus and again um, you know this asymptomatic or mild symptoms are very subjective right uh, people can have as um, low as a sniffle uh, a smaller sniffle uh, which they could you know um, consider to be just allergies but it was actually covid you know, um, so it's just a total range of different symptoms that are out there. So it's very tough to gauge it at this point. But uh, scientifically, yes, it is definitely possible for the um, virus to kind of replicate without uh, any um, symptoms if there is low level uh, replication, which could potentially still facilitate transmission. Um, that I do not know, but uh, in my mind, I think it could. So it basically means to uh, sum up what you said. Uh, there is a very good chance that uh, I might carry the virus, but I have a uh -huh. very good immune system, but I might still right. end up uh, spreading it to people near me. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh -huh. Wow. That's actually scary, man. So, yep. That is, I think, one of the biggest drivers of uh, transmission for SARS-CoV-2, you know, this pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic spread. Uh -huh. Okay. So, I have... Uh, just very generic question, but uh, something that we have all been pondering here back in India is uh, are uh -huh. masks genuinely useful? Are what? Masks. Sorry, masks. I didn't catch. Are masks yes, definitely. Um, so masks will prevent, say you are, um, you have COVID or you have symptoms, it will prevent others from contracting the disease, uh -huh. right? So as a community, just like taking vaccines and gaining herd immunity at some point, it's important that um, all individuals in the community wear masks. So, you know, so that it might not prevent you from getting infection, but it does, um, you know, prevent you from transmitting um, the virus. So I think the chances of you spreading the virus reduces from, you know, from 70% to 1%, even if you wear a normal surgical mask and not even your N95s, right? And with N95s, the chances go down um, even lower, you know, so. And with N95s, you can also prevent contraction, right? So with normal surgical masks, you can, um, um, you know, uh, prevent um, kind of giving the disease to another person mm -hmm. or transmitting the virus. Uh, but with N95s, you can also prevent contraction, right? Because they prevent like 95% um, of, uh, um, I think, small particles um, below a range. So they are pretty effective. Actually, but again, there are ways in which you should wear an N95. Uh, if you do it properly, you can prevent, um, you know, uh, contracting the virus. 
I read, came across this uh, very interesting article um, uh-huh. where there were a couple of uh, stylists in Missouri. So, uh-huh. working in a salon and uh, where uh-huh. apparently they got tested positive. Uh, uh-huh. But they didn't know that. They went about uh, just uh, you know, right. styling people in their salons. They right. interacted with about 140, 150 odd customers before they eventually uh-huh. got to know that uh, they had the virus. But uh, right. luckily, none of the people that uh, were in contact with these two stylists, they got the virus uh-huh. because they were wearing yep. masks. Mass, yeah, definitely, yeah. So I think masks play a huge role, and I think US was uh, wrong initially to have uh, not suggested the use of masks. But I guess that kind of suggestion stemmed from the fact that you know there was a shortage of masks and they needed it for the healthcare setup initially, uh, before you know um, the supply kind of met its demand, met the demand. Uh, but yeah, I mean masks are very helpful, and I uh, highly recommend that people wear masks all the time when they go outside. So I have a, the last question here. Uh, what are uh-huh. your thoughts on um, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, such as uh, Patanjali, who are uh, who are advertising their drugs for the coronavirus? Okay. Um, so the thing with Ayurveda is that uh, you know there are a lot of these medications or therapies uh, that have been studied um, in a scientific manner and have been proven to be uh, kind of um, um, effective, right? Uh, but a large part of it has not been scientifically proven, right? And as a PhD student, you know you're trained to view everything critically. And the point here is that have they really done any of these clinical trials to show that you know this would work in humans? No. Um, and uh, for example, look at uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, look at remdesivir. The, all of these two, these two drugs were touted to be the, you know, um, kind of the drugs for COVID, but none of them worked when they tested humans and then they, you know, closed it completely. And then now they're looking at other opportunities. Can you do the same thing with this um, Ayurvedic medicine that's come out? You know, there are some benefits to, um, uh, you know, for Ayurveda, for other diseases or conditions, but it has not been tested um, for coronavirus and or for COVID. And, you know, the, I don't think people should take it and, you know, they will be in this, under this false impression that they will be protected and they're going to go about contracting the virus and then transmitting the virus to everyone because, you know, we've not really tested it. The chances of it working, yeah, potentially it could work. You know, as a scientist, you are uh, led to believe there are, you know, two sides to a coin. So there are chances that it could work, but I'm going to base... Uh, my answer on evidence, right? Unless I see data to show that it works, I can't, I'm not really going to trust that. Mm-hmm. So that's my standing on this whole Ayurveda um, mm-hmm. kind of controversy that's floating around. So that's uh, it from the aspect of the crowdsource questions that I have here. And I do awesome. have a couple of questions before we wrap up for the day. Uh, so, okay. We, I know uh, throughout the episode, we have uh, it has taken a rather pessimistic tone toward the end, at least as we progress. Uh-huh. Uh, right. I mean, merely because of the situation we find ourselves in. So you look at right. the vaccine's not available, you have folks dying. But so, is there anything, uh-huh. any kinds of progress that uh, we have made so far? Any uh, positive 
note to close with. I'm particularly keen on a couple of names that got thrown around in the recent weeks. And uh-huh. one, word, one was Remdesivir and the other was the mRNA. Uh, so you, right. you mentioned these names in the course of the conversation as well. So uh, uh-huh. is there anything interesting there? Uh, any glimmer of hope at this point? Yep. Uh, so, so kind of there are two different interventions that you can take for COVID. Okay. One is you have vaccines and the other is that you have drugs, right? Vaccines are something um, that is very important in eventually eradicating the virus like we did for uh, smallpox, for example, um, is that it prevents um, disease in itself in completely, right? Um and then you have drugs, which is post-exposure, right? So once you get infected and you have symptoms, you will treat the symptoms with this drug. It can either be an antiviral, which will specifically target the virus, or it will be something that is immune modulatory, something that will dampen the immune response so that you don't have um, a bad inflammatory response, right? So these terms, these mRNA and DNA are all vaccines, right? You have certain companies such as Moderna, they're working on these mRNA vaccines and the preliminary data is very promising. Even if you look at the preclinical data on mice and hamsters, all of the mice and all of the hamsters that were vaccinated have got something called a neutralizing antibody response, which is a proxy for a good protection, okay? Um, and then when they translated it to humans, all the, I think, uh, more than 80% of, of uh, individuals who got the vaccine uh, had um, utilizing antibody responses, which is very good. Um, and uh, I think this is true of other vaccines uh, that are currently in um, clinical trials. So the data is very promising. So the chances that it will work in the field is very, very high. right? But the question now is when is it that we'll get it? So that is a big question there, right? So vaccines we know will work, but it takes a time to produce, right? And then now moving on to drugs. Uh, first, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, media attention around hydroxychloroquine and then remdesivir. Um, you know, hydroxychloroquine, again, uh, the mechanism of action is unknown. Um, we don't know whether it directly targets the virus or if it is immune modulatory. And remdesivir is also, uh, you know, it's proprietary. It's from Gilead, and we really don't know how uh, it works, right? But then both of this was tested, and um, they did not seem to improve outcome of patients, right? So, for example, I think for remdesivir, uh, the difference was like 11% of people who um, had... um, um, COVID um, had uh, severe outcomes, right? But uh, with remdesivir, the kind of percentage um, reduced from 11% to around 9%, right? So this is not a huge uh, difference in terms of outcomes. So both of these drugs and for hydroxychloroquine, they actually found out that people who were administered hydroxychloroquine had worse outcomes uh, than people who um, did not get hydroxychloroquine, right? So because of these uh, substandard results, both of these drugs have been shelved, okay? But then there's this new drug called, I think it was dexamethasone or methadone. Uh, I can't really get the correct uh, generic name out, but this is, I think, is a commonly used steroid. And um, I was just looking through the data, I think it was a couple of days ago is when it came out. And uh, they've shown that, um, you know, um, it specifically targets one group of people. So people, you know, people with severe infections uh, need ventilator use. And I think half of the people who eventually get onto the ventilator um, do not make it, 
right? And these are the stats um, within the country, in the US at least. Um, so um, this uh, steroid has been shown to improve outcomes who have eventually gotten onto the ventilator, right? So that is promising. So this could potentially reduce the mortality rate. And this, again, is uh, not your silver bullet, but it will... Um, help reducing the deaths associated with uh, COVID. And this is ubiquitously available everywhere in the world. Right? This is a commonly used uh, uh, steroid. Right? And uh, some of the other positives um, that you can probably look into is the fact that, uh, in at least in India in general, uh, the mortality rate, especially, for example, Tamil Nadu is very low. Um, because, again, they, I feel like they're doing a good job um, uh, within their limits. And the other thing is that in India, in general, is a very young population, right? Um, so the severity of disease is going to be lower. So proportionally, the mortality associated with that is also uh, going to be uh, lower, right? Um, so these are some of the positives that I can think of, you know, and the progresses that we've made. So I just uh, have one last question. Uh, uh -huh. When you look at countries like US, India, and... Uh -huh. The rate at which the cases are growing every day uh, uh -huh. is trying to flatten the curve even relevant at this point or is it just a matter of uh, waiting out for a vaccine or counting on herd immunity? No, no, I mean, definitely flattening the curve is very important here because the stress is on the public health system or right? your healthcare infrastructure, right? Say... Um, COVID is, you know, there are going to be 1,000 cases of SARS-CoV-2 infections in an area. You can have that either over a week or over a month, right? And the stress on the healthcare system is going to be different in both cases, right? So it is very, very important to flatten the curve, especially for countries like India, where I think all of your listeners will also agree that the healthcare infrastructure is not up to the level of some of these Western countries, right? Um, so there are a lesser number of ICU beds um, per capita. So you need to flatten the curve as much as possible. And I felt like um, India um, um, kind of locked down pretty early, which was good. Although you can, you know, comment on the ways in which some of these were implemented. But still, you know, the fact that the lockdown was implemented early was good. And you can see that, you know, right now we have a lot of cases, but this has happened over, you know, three, four months, right? So there's been a gradual increase. So the healthcare system has been able to cope up to an extent, right? Versus say, for example, in the US, where right now there are 40,000 cases yesterday in a single day, right? So that is something that India cannot afford. So you need to flatten the curve. And how can you flatten the curve is by, you know, um, isolating yourself if you can. Um, if you can work from home, please do that. Limit your, um, limit the times that you go outside of your house. Um, and then wear masks all the time that you go outside. Maintain uh, social distancing, six feet and 12 feet if um, possible. So if you do all of that, you can flatten the curve as a community and help the healthcare system. So that's what we are doing right now. And we need to be doing this until we have a vaccine or a drug, you know, that is shown to help uh, people. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Shasat. It's probably one of the most uh, enlightening and insightful episodes that I have done personally. And I know how busy you are and the kind mm -hmm. of job you are doing and for you to make a as much time as you did, especially on such short notice, mm. uh, big thanks for that. And I hope people listening. Yep, definitely. I think 
Yeah, yeah the pleasure is all mine, uh, Krishna. I mean, to give you some, you know, I've talked about this before as well, but uh, I'm a big fan of podcasts myself. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, cool that I'm coming in um, to a podcast as a guest myself. So there is some personal motivation from my end too, apart from the greater good and the fact that, you know, I also want to be able to communicate science and also inform the public of the right things to do, right? And answer some of the questions as well. So, yeah, I'm happy that um, you contacted me and we were able to do this. Wish you all the best in your fight against the virus. Yep, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Krishna. And keep doing this. <laughs>